As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains accounts of child sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. My other three children will now grow up without their sister and she will forever be an angel. I miss my daughter terribly every day and a piece of my heart is missing. I have done the best to help keep Tiali's case in the spotlight and I thank all of my health supporters for helping me do so. I want to not let Tiali's death be in vain. The time has come to get justice for Tiali. A lot of us will remember the haunting photo of beautiful 12-year-old Tiali Palmer, who was murdered in 2015. However, the path to the dark truth of what happened to Tiali was long and shocking and not resolved until several years later. In 2015, Tiali was living in foster care in Logan, Queensland, with Rick and Julian Thorburn and their sons Trent and Joshua. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Kate Kiriakou, the Courier-Mail newspaper's crime and courts editor, has reported extensively on Tiali's death and the tragic full story that emerged. Kate became close with Tiali's mum, Cindy Palmer, who waged her own social media efforts to find her daughter in the days after she disappeared. We start with Kate telling us of the day Tiali was reported missing. 
she was reported missing on October 30 in 2015. Uh, she was a 12-year-old girl who was living in foster care. Uh, her mother, biological mother Cindy, was in contact with her foster parents and um, had, I guess, visitation with Tiali. So, so what happened is Tiali was reported missing on October 30 because she hadn't made it to school that day. And Rick, her foster father, Rick Thorburn, said that he dropped her off at the school gate. But then she had a, an appointment um, early in the afternoon, I think, with a, with a youth worker, and she wasn't at school. So um, the youth worker contacted uh, her foster parents and said, you know, Tiali's not at school, and they said we, we weren't aware of that. The school hadn't told us. And so then uh, Rick Thorburn and the youth worker went to the police station to report her missing. And so this then resulted in a whole bunch of problems around getting the word out about a 12-year-old girl who was missing. And one of those problems was Tiali had run away before. And so, of course, as we know, in many high-profile missing persons cases around Australia over the years, if a child has a history of being a runaway, then that's what people think has happened in this case. Yeah. And Had she run away from the Thorburns before? Yeah, but only for a couple of hours. Um, and so she would often do it because she, she was, you know, craving attention and she'd had a very tumultuous upbringing and she would often tell them where she was. You know, I've run away but I'm at my friend's house uh, because she just kind of wanted the attention, I guess. And, or... She had just gone to a friend's house after school and not told them. She'd never been gone for an extended period of time. Um, she'd certainly never been gone after dark. She was afraid of the dark. She was a very young 12-year-old, very naive. Um, she wasn't a naughty kid. She, she just had a really tough upbringing. I think we probably need to speak to that before we go much further because it's, um, you know, it's going to speak to how the police saw her when they were contacted you know, what was her upbringing? How long had she been with the Thorburns? And, and how, how do you think the police were assessing the situation? How long had she been with them? Let's start with that. It was not a long period of time. It was, it was a matter of months. And she'd been in other foster homes before that. Mm. Uh, she'd sort of bounced around a bit. And she'd even been in kind of like a, a group home for a short amount of time. Gosh, that's um, a lot for any 12-year-old, isn't it? Yeah. And yep. so what was Cindy's um, particular situation that her child had been removed? Yeah, so Cindy had spent time in foster care as well herself when she was young and she had had a horrible upbringing and then she had um, a period of time in her life where she was in domestic violence situations, she was um, a drug user, uh, she really wasn't able to care for her children adequately and then she was going through um, a period of time where she was trying to turn that around. There was information that came out in the inquest that um, not long before all this happened she had indicated to the department that she was willing to relinquish um Tiali, you know, permanently. It's not It's not an uncommon story. It's certainly the environment, the location, Logan. Logan's a low socioeconomic community. Generational disadvantage is a trademark of the community. Um, it's a place where this kind of uh, generational story of women receiving poor education, being removed from their mothers, um, becoming mothers themselves really young and sort of reliving that that story. Generation after generation, 
you know, is a, is a really common story, unfortunately. So that's not a reflection on Cindy as a human being. That's a reflection on the support systems in that community. And I think the sort of the funding or lack of funding that goes into those support systems. Yeah, that's right. And I think the real um, difference here is that despite the trauma that Cindy went through, um, she turned her life around. Yeah. And I remember speaking to detectives who investigated this case and they were quite protective of her and they were, you know, took a lot of pains to say that, you know, Cindy has really turned a corner here and she is doing the absolute best she can. And and as things unfolded, you know, Cindy, you know, might might have made mistakes or might have made poor decisions or might not have been there for her daughter at certain periods, but she worked harder than anyone can imagine to be there for her daughter after she went missing. I think it also makes her advocacy for her daughter all the more powerful because I think she would have known what people would have said about her, thought about her, you know, and the judgments that would have been made about her immediately. And so right from the outset, I thought the way she stood up for her daughter was so powerful. Oh, people were saying it to her. I bet. Straight to her, yeah, you know. and Yeah, if you care so much about your kid, how come she was living with them? She was in foster care, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and she was attacked relentlessly the whole time while she was trying to work out what had happened to her daughter. And that's um, why I bring up, you know, the the Logan-ness of the situation and, again, not to put shit on Logan but or, you know, any of those other communities in Australia, but it's like, you know, Cindy was up against it and Tia was up against it and and I think that's a really important part of the story is the vulnerability of both of those women. And and directing the anger in a way that shouldn't be directed. You yeah. know, the, the anger should be directed at the perpetrator. Who was in the Thorburn household, Kate? Uh, so we've got Rick and Julene who are, you know, mum and dad. Um, Josh, who at the time of all of this was 19. He's their biological son. Yep, yeah, yeah. Josh and Trent are their two biological children and and that was it, Um, 19 and 18. Trent was a younger one. Uh, The boys were um, dancers and they lived on kind of like an acreage uh, in that area. They had horses um, on the surface, you know, when Tiali went to live there, it was it would have seemed like quite a good place for a 12-year-old girl to be, yeah. And she, she got to go to cheerleading and dance classes herself, you know, all of those sorts of extracurricular activities. Um, yeah, so on the surface it would have looked like a really lovely place for a 12-year-old girl. So from the police's perspective when, the, when she was reported missing, they're thinking, oh, well, she's not been there long, she hasn't properly settled in, she's been bounced around a lot, you know, between foster families She's run away, in adverted commas, a number of times. She'll come back, guys. She's just gone off to a friend's place. She's seeking attention, but possibly not taken it super seriously. Is that is that possible? I think initially they could have thought for sure, you know, she's she's run away. But I think they would have taken it a bit more seriously when she was still gone the next morning. Yeah. And certainly Cindy was frantic. Um, on the surface, Rick and Jolene appeared frantic. 
That night at about 11pm, Cindy organised a local Facebook group to put a post up about um, Tiali. And here's where some of the legal issues come into it, right? Because they put a post with a photo of Tiali in a school uniform and said, you know, Cindy said, my my little girl's gone missing. She um, has never been away after dark. I'm really worried about her. Can everyone look out for her? She's with one of her friends. Can you tell me? The police could not legally do the same thing. And this went on for days and days. They couldn't because Tiali was a child in foster care. So she can't be identified publicly. And they had to get permission from, you know, a government authority um, to put her photo and her name out there. And that took a very long time. And I know changes have been made since then to speed that process up. But five or six days later, they still hadn't done it. In that time, Cindy and Rick and Julene were on this um, Facebook post, which was shared thousands and thousands of times, Mm. um, begging people for information. And Cindy, poor Cindy, was on there arguing with people who were saying to her, stop contacting my daughter. She doesn't know what happened to your kid. Oh. You know, we're not going to talk to you or the police. And Cindy was just frantic. She, she, Her daughter had been gone for days. She was 12. Mm. Um, you know, other family members were on there posting, please, Tiali, contact your mum. People were on there posting, offering to help search for her, saying, why hasn't the media reported on this? Um, why haven't the police put something out? all that sort of stuff. So the 5th of November was when the police finally put out a missing persons alert and that was because they'd been able to get that permission. But very tragically that same day, you know, just hours later, uh, Tiali's body was found um, on the banks of a river in, in the Logan area but certainly not very close to her home. And she, you know, was... Uh, her partly dressed. She most of her clothing had been removed. Um, her her face was submerged in the water. Um, really awful. She was found by fishermen, so you, you can only imagine what that would have been like for them. And in this time, uh, Rick had been driving around with Cindy in the car, looking for her, going to friends' houses where they thought she might be. And Rick had just been pretending to not know where she was. Um, Kate, what I find extraordinary about this case is the story that Rick and the family told about Tiali. It's almost like victim blaming a child and making her seem so adult. I I think this is one of the most awful cases I've heard of in recent times. I found it unbelievable that a 12-year-old child was almost... Oh, that's it. Portrayed the, as an adult the by way, this family. Well, the way they closed ranks against her is really. When did that start, from your perspective? When did when did that sort of the, the family sort of start to close ranks? Well, I mean, behind the scenes, it was immediately, yes. obviously, yeah. but the rest of us, uh, the rest of the public, didn't find that out until nearly a year later. So, what had happened in the meantime is police had gone on with their investigation. At some point, I think uh, might have been February, um, they convinced Cindy to do a press conference, and I went to that press conference mm. and. I mean, this is one of the sad parts about the whole case. So Cindy uh, had never had anything to do with the media before this. And it's a pretty confronting thing, right? I, I can't imagine you're the parent of a missing child. It's pretty clear that something terrible has happened to her. She's been gone for months. She's 12. Um, it's pretty clear that she's dead. 
and that you're in a room um, with, you know, a dozen minimum journalists and camera crews and all that sort of stuff and the police say they spill and then you have to beg people to come forward with information and then you answer questions from journalists and, you know, 99.9% of the time that's incredibly respectful, you know, but in this case a journalist at the end yelled out, you know, Cindy, why'd your kid get taken off you? Oh Something like that. Oh and um, police were really angry and they just ushered her out basically and, and said that's it, um, entered the press conference. You know, Cindy to me just came across as someone who was completely in shock um, by the situation that she was in and, and just didn't know how to respond to any of it, which is perfectly fine, you know. So it was probably, it was nearly a year before police actually set their sights on the Thorburns. Was it really? And wow. Yeah, so they were arrested in... September, end of September 2016, and Tiali was reported missing on October 30, 2015. Part of this always, you know, every investigation has a red herring, yeah. and this one did too, and that red herring was a little girl at the school who swore she had seen Tiali that morning walking through the school gate. Ah. So I I personally asked a question at one of those earlier press conferences just, you know, not based on anything, just it was just a question. I said, you know, do you have any independent witnesses that saw Tiali get out of that car at the school gate that morning or are you just going on the word of, of the foster father? And this is something as a crime reporter you would ask, right? Like, do you know for sure she was dropped off? Because isn't it very weird that no CCTV cameras have picked her up leaving the school or walking off or catching a bus or nobody saw her? her leave the school that morning. So how do you know she even got there? Mm. And the police officer said, um, we're, we're very comfortable that no one in her immediate circle is involved. And that's because a little girl said to them, I saw her, saw her at the school. And um, Gosh. obviously that little girl was just confused by by her dates, which, which happens particularly when people come back. You know, yeah. hey, how do you know who you saw a week ago um, for I sure, don't. whether it was the Tuesday or the Wednesday? I don't yeah. either, you know. Um, so then they had some information that she'd been planning to skip school that day and go and see someone at a house nearby and, of course, that information wasn't correct either. And then they also did some very high-tech stuff to find if anyone was in the area of that river where she'd been, her body had been left at, at around the time where she would have been left there. And they'd circled in on this mobile phone um, that had pinged a tower of making a phone call from that location and they'd been watching that person as well. And um, they'd been putting a lot of effort into those two leads to see if anything came of it. But then um, in 2016, two things happened and one of those things was an anonymous phone call came through to police saying, did you know that the night before Tiali was reported missing, so that was October 29, the Thorburns all had a family meeting about something, you know, very serious and there wasn't much more info from that, but it was something that the Thorburns had never mentioned and that is very curious. Why wouldn't you say that? Mm. Um, especially in, a, in an investigation with a missing person, police go through every single detail of what happened that night. Absolutely. Every detail. And then the other thing that happened was a woman contacted police and said, I have two young daughters and one of my daughters has told me that um, Rick Thorburn has acted inappropriately towards her. Mm. That obviously was a very big deal. Um, yeah. 
both in itself alone, but also the fact that he's the same family that had a foster child who went missing almost a year earlier. Mm. Coming up, Courier Mail Crime and Courts editor Kate Kiriakou tells us about how police made serious inroads into finding Tiali's killer and the shocking cover-up by the foster family whose care she was in. We'd like to thank our patrons, Annika Vinson, Sarah Condi, Zilla, Emily Shaw, Emily Cox, good names, Jessica Rolfe and Rachel Bailey. We really appreciate your support. 1-size-fits-all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's Kate to tell us more about the breakthrough that led to police finding the truth about the death of Tiali Palmer. So at that point, you know, the police had been investigating it for some time, but at that point the Triple C became involved. And the Triple C, for people who don't live in Queensland, is the Crime and Corruption Commission. And um, the Crime and Corruption Commission has different powers to the police. And the most important one here is they have the ability to hold a coercive hearing That means so if you're a person of interest in a crime and you are approached by police and they say we want you to do a um, formal interview, you have the right to not answer questions, Um, you know, and with with a coercive hearing, you don't. So if you don't answer questions in a coercive hearing, you go to jail. Oh, wow. So what happened was they were able to determine who made that anonymous phone call 
they spoke to that person and um, that family, in fact, who were relatives of the Thorburns. So there was a mother and daughter and they pulled them into some coercive hearings. They got more information out of them and then they pulled the Thorburns in and um, the Thorburns uh, lied in those hearings and you can go to jail for lying to uh, in a coercive hearing as well. So, did any of them crack over the process of the investigation? And and as it, the picture became clearer, did any of those other three family members start to to crack? Well, I mean, they did eventually because the Triple C had been able to establish what had happened, and then they brought them back in basically and said, "Here's all the evidence that you lied. You know, mm. tell us the truth, or you're going to jail." And so they did. Yeah, mm. and. And, and they'd also um, tap their phones and, and put listening devices in the house. So they, they got them all planning to lie to the Triple C. You know, wow. they, they recorded all those conversations. Um, eventually they, they really had no choice but to tell the truth. So what had happened was Trent had basically molested Tiali oh. and who was 12 and he was 18. And he then, you know, Tiali being this young, naive girl had thought she was pregnant and she um, was very upset about that and she'd obviously told Trent. And Trent had um, confessed that to a female relative of his through Facebook messages and said, I don't know what to do, you know, she's, she says she's pregnant and, and came up with this ridiculous story about how he'd only done it because she'd been threatening to hurt his dog and, uh, and later on he admitted to just making all that up to make her look like the bad one and him look like somehow some kind of victim in this situation. Mm. And um, I hope you can tell the tone of my voice with that because yeah, yeah. just the whole thing's disgusting. It's gross, um, isn't it? This whole thing yeah. is gross. Yeah, this poor, naive little girl who was in this position of uh, this really vulnerable position with these in a house of four adults who had been trusted to protect her. One of them has molested her and then come up with this ridiculous story to paint himself as a victim. And so this female relative who he confessed to did the right thing and she said, listen, Trent, you have to tell your parents, you know, this is really serious. You have to talk to your mum and dad and, and let them help you and you need some help here, you know, you need help. And soon after he told his mum and she said, you know, oh, my God, what have you done? He started to cry and he said, Mum, I've done something terrible. And I said, oh, my God, mate. So you were shocked? I was absolutely stunned, shocked. I said, oh, mate, no, how could you let something like that happen? That night, um, October 29, Tiali had complained of having stomach pains and she'd been at dance class and so Julene had gone and picked her up from dance class and, and brought her home and sort of, you know, put her in the shower and then put her to bed. And while she was in the shower was when Trent confessed to her. Mm. Then she's gone and told Rick uh, what's happened and he said, I can't let Trent go to jail. Um, he wouldn't survive a day. I wouldn't say he was cross but he was disturbed about it and he was very concerned because he knows the implications for a boy of his age with a girl of her age. He was adamant about him doing jail time, that he would go to jail for something like this. So Rick was extremely concerned about that and he couldn't allow Trent to go to jail. 
In the meanwhile, the mother of this female relative who Trent had confessed to had contacted Julene and said, we need to talk urgently, you know, you need to. And so Julene went over there and um, the boys were both out. Um, They both left the house and Julene went and had this family meeting with those female relatives and they said, listen, we're not going to report this but... Your your son needs some help here. We don't. This isn't right. You know, you need to do something about this. Um, so we'll leave it in your hands, kind of thing. And and in the meantime, she was getting these text messages from Rick saying, "Hurry up! You know, you need to come home. You've talked for long enough. Um, we need to sort this out." And up until you know the the triple C had spoken to these women, nobody had known mm. that Rick was home alone with Tiali that night. So when uh, everyone got home, uh, Rick called them in for, again, a family meeting and said, I've taken care of it. Oh, my gosh. Um, it's chilling. And I think he said something about um, it's all taken care of or something. What do you mean by that? So don't worry. Don't ask any questions. I've taken care of it. Um, and I went to go to her room and he said, don't go in there. I said, why not? And he said, I told you it's sorted, it's taken care of. I said, what do you mean? He said, don't ask any questions. I guess I had a gut feeling that something wasn't right, and but I didn't, couldn't really do or do much about it. If, if that's what he's done, I didn't want to see it or know anything about it. So. And he said, tomorrow we just go about our day as normal. I'm going to act like I'm driving her to school. I'm going to get in the car and drive. And um, nobody asked me any questions, but, you know, I hope you understand Tiali's gone. So the next morning um, everyone went about their day as normal and Rick got in his car and drove past um, Tiali's high school and um, didn't stop um, but just drove past as though he dropped her off. And um, obviously that day she was reported missing. Mm. He's a monster. This guy's an he absolute a monster. monster. But, I mean, as you know, frankly, as are all the members of the family, if they've yeah. accepted that. And all I can think about is how you've spent that night, the boys in particular, Josh mm. and Trent, in their bedroom, uh, you know, it's just, I mean, uh, you know, if you can summon any compassion at all for them, you think you have to think, God, how traumatising, how traumatic, even though Trent has been a beast, um, still to come home and have your dad tell you that. And um, Julian, to come home from her conference at the relative's house with whatever solution she's got in her mind or whatever she's thinking she's going to say when she gets back and then be confronted with that. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it was traumatic. But I find it very difficult to have too much sympathy for them yeah. when they drove around pretending to look for a little girl with her frantic mother. Like, I, t- I totally get what you're saying for sure, but um, I mean, he didn't give anyone just, else a choice. Is all I, I guess I'm saying. No, we didn't give anyone else no. a choice as to whether or not they agreed to be part of this, you know, terrible plan and. Yep, I, I agree with that. He certainly didn't. He he did it while they were all out. Uh, he made that decision and then they all had to go along with his plan that he concocted. It suggests to me that he's always been maybe a, the controller of the family and that kind of autocratic person. 
That that was a picture that was painted during all the court proceedings for sure, that he was a controlling person, a very strict father. Um, it was a very strict household. Tiali was living there under like a points system. Oh. She would earn points for being good and have points taken off her. She was bad and like that very... Yeah, it was a very strict household there. And he he's an evil, evil man. They pleaded guilty. Um, Julene, Josh and Trent were all charged and brought before the court. And um, Julene and Josh went to jail for about six months for, you know, effectively charges around lying to the C that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um you know, hindering the investigation. So just, just uh, I don't have the exact charges in front of me, but it was it was that kind of thing. Mm. And um, obviously, Rick um, went down for murder. How did he go though with the um, the accusations of molestation of the other girls? That the, the original sort of um, red flags. Yeah. So he was charged with thirteen child sex offences. Wow. Oh. And that in itself became even more bizarre and, and, you know, this is really going to paint a picture of the type of person Rick Thorburn is. So he pleaded guilty to those charges and then uh, later claimed that he was coerced into pleading guilty and that he'd lost his memory and didn't know who he was and (gasps) didn't know what the word jail meant and all this sort of absolute ridiculous rubbish and tried to withdraw his guilty plea and, um, yeah, the courts just didn't go for it. They just said he was ridiculous. He never told uh, the court or certainly Cindy or anybody what what happened, did he, to Tiali? Uh, he actually did. He did read a letter out at the inquest uh, about what had really happened. Did he? Uh, he'd, yeah, he'd had some bizarre handwritten letter. I can read it to you if you yes, like. Yes, right do. in front of me. Uh, I just want to start by, before I read this, yep. I just want to say that the in, the coroner found it to be absolute rubbish. So, well, that's what I was going to ask. I thought, yeah. I, I know there was a version of events that he yes. gave, but I don't know that it was accepted by the court. But yes, please do. Yes. So here we go. He says, there has been much speculation about the cause of Tia's death. I was never given the opportunity in court to give an account of what has happened. So that's his first lie, right? If yeah. you want to give evidence in court <laughs> in your own defence, you absolutely can. You could have spoken to the police on the very first day that you reported her missing. You could have given your version of events then. So anyway, that's the first lie. On the night Tia died, we got into an argument. She was messing about and wouldn't go to bed. Again, as you said, here's some nice victim blaming for you. Mm. She was being stubborn and escalated to her running away again. She packed her bag and started off down the driveway. I tried to talk her around and get her to come back to the house and told her that she was being silly. I followed her down the driveway to the front gate, which was around 200 metres, and I decided I will bring her back to the house. I put my arm around her from behind and tried to walk her back. But she started struggling and I had to hold her tighter. She started screaming at me and was swearing. I told her to stop because our neighbour is close to our driveway and it was very late. She got worse so I put my hand over her mouth and kept going. When we got to the veranda I let her go and she fell to the ground. I picked her up and put her on the seat and she fell to the side again. She didn't respond to me when I spoke to her. Her eyes were closed and I didn't think she was breathing. I must have accidentally suffocated her with my hand over her mouth and holding her so tightly around the waist and tummy. I can't think what happened after this. I don't know if I tried to resuscitate her. I know that I am responsible for Tia's death and there's something I struggle to live with. Sorry could never take away everyone's pain, but I am truly very sorry. I mean, no one believed that. So 
For what it's worth, that was his version of events that was given in court. Um, And, yeah, from memory, uh, the coroner said that it was unbelievable. Yeah. (laughs) Basically, it was not that they didn't accept it. Yeah. Will Rick ever get out, Kate? What was his sentence? Uh, So the sentence, the minimum sentence for murder in Queensland is 20 years non-parole. So he got that. He he got a bit more time. I think it was about two years for the um, child sex offences. But I I can't remember if that would be cumulative or, um, you know, if it would actually in real terms give him more time behind bars. But, I mean, just because you're non-parole is 20 years, it doesn't really, it doesn't mean that you necessarily will get out at that point. So he's gone to jail for a long time. Um, I think he I think he was taken to hospital at one point and he nearly died. Um, he's 60. I was re- Well, it'll actually, he'd be 62 now. This is a story from 2020 and he was 60. So I, I don't think he's going to get out of jail because um, he's not in great health. No. What was his extensive, as you called it, criminal history prior to this? Oh, yeah. His extensive criminal history was just, you know, petty stuff like break-ins, burglaries, you know, stealing cars, that sort of stuff. But, you know, as I had conversations with Cindy about this, you know, he'd been to jail before. Um, If you've got that sort of criminal history... Why should you be a suitable person to foster a vulnerable child? Um, oh, and not only that, I'm just I'm just reading in the inquest um, report that he and his wife requested specifically requested high and complex needs children. Is that because of more money? Yes, because they receive yeah, additional yeah. payments to foster yeah. children with high and complex needs. Jeez. I mean, yeah, yeah. You would think you would you would need. High and complex skills. You yeah, need to exactly. demonstrate and skills to be able to and experience to foster children like that. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And because Rick didn't have any offences of violence or anything involving children uh, mm. at that point in time, he was still a suitable person. And that really goes to show how desperate they are for foster carers in yeah. a system that's very overwhelmed. You know that that he at that time was still a suitable person. Uh, they changed it after this. So today he wouldn't have been. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. He request, They requested someone with complex needs because, because it, it brought more money. Wow. And Tiali was assessed and found to have high and complex needs with many challenging behaviours. But because of her disadvantaged background, you know, and because of Cindy's disadvantaged background, poor Cindy has obviously been raised without having modelling and she has not learnt parenting skills, this poor woman, and then found herself in this domestic violence situation with kids and she has um, petitioned the court, it says here, to have her own children removed. So they weren't removed from her by authorities. Cindy petitioned and asked for help with them because her domestic violence situation was so extreme. She was trying to protect her kids. She was trying to protect her kids, yeah. She went to every single one of the court hearings and even... um, you know, mentions that might only go for two or three minutes. And, you know, I'd, I'd even communicate with her and say, hey, Cindy, you know, this is it's a procedural thing, right? You know, you, I know you've got mm-hmm. young children. It's very difficult for you to make these hearings. You've, you've got to find someone to look after your kids and then you've got to go down to the courthouse. Uh, it's it, The hearing will last for two minutes and, and it will basically be lawyers saying, is all the paperwork in order? Are we, yeah. you know, blah, blah, blah. And she would say, I, I, I don't care, I, I promised myself I'd do this for her and she would go to every single hearing. Mm. At one of the sentencing hearings, you know, um, 
she was obviously very upset with the sentence, some of the sentences that, you know, the other family members were given. Mm. And for her, it was personal in so many ways. You know, they covered up the, the murder of her daughter, but then they, they lied to her and pretended to look for her for days while Cindy was absolutely frantic. So for her, it was a very, very personal situation for many reasons. And, you know, when, when it became clear that, you know, Julene would serve, she was sentenced to 18 months jail to serve six months uh, on parole. Uh, I can't remember who it was, the, which sentencing it was, but Cindy, I remember seeing her in, in, you know, the foyer area of the court just in hysterics, like collapsed in her partner's arms, you know, and just just couldn't comprehend it that they could do these things and then, you know, get that sentence. And, you know, what, whatever your thoughts are on the sentence, no sentence is going to be enough for someone like Cindy when it comes to what happened to her daughter, like no sentence would be enough. So, you know, she was there all the time and and she was there despite the fact that she'd had that experience initially with the media. She handed out wristbands at the school. She campaigned for her daughter. She campaigned for change. If I'm writing a story about, you know, laws involving offences against children, I can contact her and she will provide her thoughts and opinions to me, um, you know, very articulately. And she's just... I have a lot of respect for Cindy. She obviously got a lot of things wrong when she was younger. She's had a really tough life, but she really worked so hard to turn things around. Despite, it could have gone the other way, you know. She suffered such trauma and and grief over the murder of her daughter and and she became a better person. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, please pass on our regards to her. And she's one of a number of women we've spoken about on this show and and as I say, Logan is one of a number of communities we've spoken about a lot, you know, Mount Druitt in Sydney, Broadmeadows in Melbourne, um, Elizabeth in Adelaide. And it frustrates me that the statistics are really very clear about these communities where the low socioeconomic communities, where there's also really low services in terms of mental health and support for families and certainly for single mums and uh, people experiencing domestic violence because like we know that Centrelink and Medicare are linked and we know they can cut you off your benefits really easily when they want to if you haven't you know attended whatever interview or meeting so they can see very clearly where people aren't meeting obligations because of mental health issues and because of medical issues so why can't they use that data to push more services in and push more um, support in for people. That's what I don't understand. Mm. And um, I think, you know, let's push for change in those areas as well. And it shouldn't just be women like Cindy who's pushed hard enough by life, you know. Why should Cindy be the person fighting? I think the rest of and us should do our bit and fight for that stuff as well. horrible tragedy. Yeah. Um, and she's now – she's got a voice now because of this horrible thing that happened. It's, it's, not, mm. it's not right. We should be listening That's before right. – Kate, what happened to Trent? Because I noticed I was yeah. Googling and he's there's a bit of news about him recently, but I was kind of shocked by the sentence he got, I'll have to say. Yeah, so he was charged with, you know, those same offences of, you know, not cooperating with police and lying to the Triple C, that sort of thing. But he was also charged with incest because technically a foster child is considered by law a sibling. Really? So, I didn't know yeah. that. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so he got four years and served 16 months. Mm. And then he got out and then um, 
you know, like he, this family has become fairly notorious in that Logan community, you know, so. It's a tough I think, town. I mean, you know, yeah, you don't want to be notorious yeah. in Logan, let's be honest. No, and I, I think the last thing I heard about um, Julene was that she'd started, I think it was like a dog walking business. But other than that, I think, you know, in the last 12 months or so, they've they, that family has kind of flown under the radar. But I think the important thing to know is that I doubt that any of them will ever have access to any sort of, you know, the fostering children or um, looking after children in that regard. Kate, you, you have been a reporter for more than 20 years. You've written, I follow your work very closely. I love it. Thank you. From your experience and your spidey senses, did you think this family's involved, Rick Thorburn's involved, I mean, from the start and that very pointed question you asked at the media conference? I don't think you just threw that out for, uh, <laughs> you know, for the sake of it. I think to me we uh, – so we had – when this first happened it was big news, right? So mm. we had a lot of reporters out on the ground, you know, when her body was found obviously yeah. because before that there was no media coverage. But when she was found – we had, you know, people out on the ground asking questions, you know, uh, I was at those early press conferences, but one of our reporters found Rick and Julene leaving, I think it was a teddy bear at the at the school maybe, like there, were, there was like a floral tribute for Tiali and they were leaving something there and our reporter hit them up and tried to get them to talk. And she said they were very strange with the way they responded and that always sat a bit odd with me. And, again, I've already said in this interview that people don't always respond how you would expect them to in situations of grief, Mm. but sometimes some things just make you wonder. And police are the same, right? I don't want to claim that. I've got some incredible insight into anything ever because, you know, I certainly don't. But... I guess sometimes you just need evidence, right? And that's why I asked that question, you know, did anyone did anyone see her? And, of course, the first people you look at are the people who are the closest to that person. Sadly, most children are murdered by a relative um, or someone who is a carer for them. Um, most women are murdered by their partner. It's really common. So as a journalist, it's the first thing you think, you know, if she's disappeared from this home, did they have anything to do with it? And so uh, I, I don't know why I asked that question if it was just a standard question, but for sure that I, I do remember the reporter saying their response at the time was a bit odd and that mm. combined with the fact that obviously they, she was in their care, they were the last people to see her. I, of course, had no idea of what had actually unfolded. No, um, who could? Who could guess? Who, yeah, it was just one of the most bizarre and shocking and horrible things um, when it all came out. Thanks to our guest, Kate Kiriakou, crime and courts reporter for The Courier-Mail. Kate is also the author of the book The Sting, the undercover operation that caught Daniel Morecambe's killer. If you have been affected by anything discussed in this podcast, you can phone Lifeline on 13 11 14. We'd like to thank our patrons, Libby at Red Fox, Beth Hargreaves, Deborah Snedden, Geraldine Scott, Bri Shaw, Tegan Southern, Vanessa Bazanik, Madeline Hodson. Thanks for listening to Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. 
This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.